Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOGS program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here to promote every week and to defend public education. That's education that's public in ownership and control. It's also public above all in access. It's public in purpose and it should be uh, public in accountability. It isn't always, but it certainly is more accountable to the taxpayer than the private school system. But um, we've got a very full program for you this afternoon. Uh, Trevor Cobal from Save Our Schools has been doing his facts and figures again. And as we all know, the Labor government, well, can we really call it a Labor government, are prepared to give extraordinary tax relief to the very wealthy in this country. And we all know, it's just common sense, that uh, people are wealthy because they don't pay tax. Now, they don't pay the tax they should because, amongst other things, the wealthy don't want to pay tax to educate the children of the poor. But let's hear what Trevor Cobalt has turned up in his press release, Millionaires Who Pay No Tax Rob the Poor. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. New figures published by the Australian Tax Office, the ATO, last month dramatically show how the rich rob from the poor. They rob from the poor by paying no or minimal taxes, which siphons funding from key services such as public education, healthcare, aged care and the NDIS. The ATO figures show that a tiny minority of very wealthy individuals feed their wealth at the expense of millions of low-income families who rely on these crucial public services. The ATO figures reveal that 119 millionaires did not pay the top tax rate in 2019 to 2020, despite an average income of $3 million each. The revenues lost to the government is at $155 million. The figures show that 60 millionaires paid no tax despite average incomes of over 3.5 million. The revenue loss there amounted to about 93 million. Another 59 millionaires paid tax at lower than the top rate. So the revenue loss for these millionaires was another $62 million. And you can find the tables and all of these figures at the Save Our Schools website. A few of these millionaires earn a normal living. They live off interest and dividends. Only 14 of the 60 who paid no tax reported receiving income from salaries, and it comprised less than 2% of their total income. Only 18 of the other 59 millionaires who paid tax at less than the top rate reported income from salaries, and it comprised only 3% of their total income. They are rentiers, the modern version of Thorstein Veblen's leisure class. In contrast, the ATO statistics show that many labourers, kitchen hands, waiters, cleaners, childcare and other service workers earn less than $30,000 a year, yet they pay more tax than the 60 millionaires and the same rate as another 21 millionaires whose taxable income falls in the 18000 to 37000 tax bracket. This is a terrible injustice. Not only do millionaires pay less or similar tax to low-income workers, but the latter are also dependent on public education, public health and other public services that are being robbed of funding by millionaires paying less than the top tax rate. These millionaires are able to arrange their financial affairs to massively reduce their tax. They claim deductions in earning income from interest and dividends such as management fees and investment advice. They also claim deductions for the cost of managing their tax affairs. 16 millionaires who paid no tax in 2019-2020 also claimed the cost of managing their tax affairs, including fees paid to tax advisors that amounted to $80,000 each. Nine claimed interest costs charged by the ATO of 474000 each. Three millionaires claimed litigation costs of $250,000 each for appeals against ATO rulings. 
the total deductions claimed by the 60 millionaires who paid no tax amounted to $4.2 million each. These deductions enabled them to make an income loss of nearly $160,000 each and therefore pay no tax. Donations were another major tax deduction by millionaires. 19 of the, of the millionaires who paid no tax claimed donations of $6 million each. 50 of the other 59 millionaires who paid less than the top tax rate claimed donations of $2.4 million each. In all likelihood, some of these donations went to private schools. Private schools received $1.2 billion in privately sourced income other than from fees and charges in 2020. Much of this was from donations, although it's also included income from fundraising and investments. Annual information statements lodged with the Charities Commission show that many elite private schools receive millions in donations. For example, Cranbrook School in Sydney received $9.4 million in 2020, while Sydney Church of England Grammar received $3.6 million and Skeggs $2.9 million. In Victoria, Corowa Girls School received $8.4 million in donations. Melbourne Grammar got $5.3 million and Scotch College received $4 million. Marketing for donations is big business. Many private schools produce glossy brochures for their annual giving appeals. For example, Cranbrook School calls, calls for donations to seven separate funds. Many schools, such as Wesley College in Melbourne, have at least four donation funds. Some wealthy families have donated huge amounts to private schools in the past. The billionaire owner of Canberra Airport, Terry Snow, donated a record-breaking $20 million to Canberra Grammar School in 2019 and after donating $8 million to the school in 2013. In 2020, another millionaire family in Canberra donated $4 million to Radford College. Apart from reducing tax revenue available for service such as public education, health, aged care, NDIS, such donations to private schools rob funding from these services indirectly because they are excluded from the assessment of the financial need of schools for government funding. As a result, the financial need of schools is overestimated and they receive more government funding than warranted. It is overfunding that could be used for public education and other public services. It is another way the rich rob from the poor. These millionaires who minimise their tax also rob low-income earners in yet another way. Their children and grandchildren generally attend elite private schools. Despite charging fees of up to $40,000 a year, these schools receive millions in taxpayer funding. For example, the MySchool website shows that Sydney Grammar charges fees of over 40000 per student and its Ixia score is at the 99th percentile and 97% of its students are from the top socio-educationally advantaged quartile, the SEA. Yet it received $7.1 million in government funding in 2020 and its total income of nearly 50000 per student is over three times that of the average public school in New South Wales. Wesley College in Melbourne charges fees of nearly $30,000 per student. Its Ixia score is at the 97th percentile and 72% of its students are from the top SEA quartile. Yet it received $3.23 million in government funding in 2020. Its total income of just on 39,000 per student was nearly three times that of the average public school in Victoria. These schools do not need government funding. It is just another form of welfare for the rich that extends the advantages obtained from a wealthy background over a student from a disadvantaged background. There is no case to provide government funding to public schools whose resources exceed what society is prepared to provide for children enrolled in public schools. It's a sheer waste of taxpayer funds that would be better used to support public education and other much needed public services. The stage three tax cuts for the rich will rob even more funding from services for low-income families. According to the new estimates by the Parliamentary Budget Office, the stage three tax cuts will cost 
$243 billion over eight years from 2024-25 to 2032-33. The top 20% of income earners would receive a tax cut of $188 billion, nearly 80% of the total benefit of tax cuts. This massive windfall for the richest people in Australia will exacerbate inequality and deny much needed funding for key services such as public education, healthcare, aged care and the NDIS. The tax minimisation strategies of the rich are legal but immoral. Appealing to the morality of serial tax minimisers is no solution to the drain of taxpayer funding from public education and other public services. Governments must look at options to make the rich pay. One option is to end tax concessions that predominantly benefit the rich. These include negative gearing, superannuation, capital gains discount and excess franking credits. These concessions siphon off about $34 billion a year to the top 20% of income earners. The Albanese government has walked away from such reforms, but sooner or later they'll have to be put back on the agenda because of widespread public demand for public services and the fiscal deficit. There are also several options to consider, such as a progressive wealth tax and resurrecting inheritance taxes. As the US billionaire Warren Buffett told the US Senate Finance Committee several years ago, dynastic wealth, the enemy of a meritocracy, is on the rise. Equality of opportunity has been on the decline. A progressive and meaningful estate tax is needed to curb the movement of a democracy towards a plutocracy. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Dale. And, of course, the dog's position is not that different to Trevor Cobalt's. We believe that the, that uh, people who are wealthy should pay their proper amount of tax and, of course, the private schools shouldn't be getting uh, the exemptions that they do because they happen to be labelled charities when, of course, they're not charitable in any sense of the or any common sense of the word. But um, we've got uh, a bit of a break coming up. We'll have a break. And Sol and Dale are going to come back and tell us about how the Sydney private school fees have jumped 50% in the last decade. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. still listening to the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools, and here is Sol and Dale uh, to report on Sydney private school fees and how, uh, in spite of, I don't know how many of our listeners would go back to the 90s, but Mr Kemp, as I recall, who was the Conservative uh, Minister for Education, said they had to give more state aid to private schools so that they could bring their fees down to the level that ordinary people could pay. But what has happened is that the more money that the private schools have received, the higher they have put up the fees because the whole purpose of private schooling is to select and discriminate. And the wealthy private schools, of course, select and discriminate on the basis of ability to pay. It's completely counter to the dog's position where we believe that every child has a right to a good, high-quality public education and taxpayer money should only go to schools which are accountable to the public and are open to the public. But um, over to Sorrel and Dale. Thanks, Jean. So this article is by Lucy Carroll. Fees at Sydney's private schools have risen by an average of more than 50% in the past decade. 
far exceeding inflation and wage growth and could hit $70,000 annually at some of the city's most expensive schools within 15 years. A new analysis of school fee increases by the Blueprint Institute comes as some parents turn to credit card debt, extend mortgages, and increasingly enter into payment plans to manage and fund private school education. The Think Tank's report, released on Thursday, examined fee rises at almost 700 schools nationally and found private school fees leapt by an average of 50% nationally in the decade to 2020, far outstripping inflation at 22% and wage growth at 29%. Chief Executive of the Blueprint Institute, David Cross, said fees at Sydney and Melbourne private schools rose by an average of 54% in the past 10 years, and in some cases have risen by more than 80% since 2011. Parents are stretching themselves financially rather than withdrawing their kids from a non-government school, Cross said. Switching schools and upending a child's life comes with massive social and educational costs, so it is definitely a last resort. It's not like deciding to stop paying gym fees or other recurrent expenses. Fees at three Sydney schools, the King's School, the Scots College, and SCEGGS Darlinghurst tipped over $40,000 for year 12 this year. If the current growth continues, it is conceivable the most expensive schools could charge upwards of $70,000 within the next 15 years, Cross said. But Chief Executive of the Association of Independent Schools, New South Wales, Jeff Newcomb, said the median fees at the state's independent schools were about $5,700 a year, and school councils were extremely conscious of increases. Education costs are rising, especially transport and technology costs, but schools are doing everything they can to keep fees manageable. Between now and 2029, independent schools in New South Wales will lose $200 million in funding from the state government under the new funding model. The report shows fees at Knox Grammar have risen from 23430 for year 12 in 2011 to 35130 in 2022. At Loreto Kirribilli, fees more than doubled from 13095 a decade ago to 27600 this year. At Wollongong's St Mary of the Sea College, fees have increased 57% in a decade. Wages make up more than half of a school's costs, and as private schools add more programs, expand subjects, and spend more on teachers, costs are often passed on to parents. Private schools also have a higher teacher-student ratio and employ more non-teaching staff, such as nurses and psychologists. At private schools in capital cities, there has been a concentration of extreme wealth as middle-income families are priced out of contention for enrolment spots, Cross said. But any sector that receives $18 billion in public funding should be regulated to prevent misuse of funds and ensure societal benefit. Data provided by Edstart, a company that provides tailored loans for school tuition, said customer numbers have more than doubled in the past six months. We're now funding students at over 600 schools with total payment plans issued surpassing $500 million, a spokesperson for Edstart said. Many of our customers use it as more of a cash flow budgeting tool, chunking down school fee payments and aligning it to when they get paid. Australia stands out amongst OECD nations for its high share of children educated in non-government schools, Cross said, with about 65% of students attending public schools, about 15% are educated in the independent sector and 19% in Catholic schools. By comparison, in OECD countries, on average, around 80% of students attend a government school. A survey by Edstart in 2018 found 15% of parents had used credit cards to pay fees, 
while a quarter dipped into savings, sold assets, took out personal loans, or asked grandparents to contribute. Anna Hogan, a research fellow in the School of Teacher Education at Queensland University of Technology, said it was concerning that more parents were using payment plans to spread out costs instead of paying upfront at the beginning of term. It shows families are hurting. Families want to keep children in private schools, regardless of the strain being placed on them financially, she said. Cross said, to put downward pressure on fees, an independent non-government school transparency advisory committee could be set up by each state government. If schools wanted to raise their fees beyond a certain affordability mark, they would need to justify that increase to continue to receive public funding, he said. Botany resident Kristen Rusniak said high fees at some nearby private schools was one reason her 11-year-old twins, Zach and Luca, will attend their local public high school. We wanted a non-religious co-educational school that had a good outdoor sports area. While we aren't facing financial challenges, we decided we would prefer to keep the money instead of spending it on high school fees, Rusniak said. I grew up in Sweden, which is centered around public education. We did look into some private schools, but some of the fees are ridiculously high. And we were looking at up to $60,000 for both of them in senior school. Parents at New South Wales non-government schools paid 3.04% more on average for tuition this year after most schools had smaller increases or froze fees last year to provide financial relief during the pandemic. Over to you, Dale, for some of the comments. Thank you, Sarah. Yes, there were plenty of comments. One comment alluded to how even though you're paying so much money, the private school results have been proven to be no better than the public school results. Waste of money. People like to waste their money, don't they? Uh, Grumps said, most of my friends' kids went to expensive private schools. None has praised the education. Many parents have said they would not do it again. One kid chastised his dad openly and said the money could have been better spent on skiing holidays. Private schools are a triumph of marketing over reality. Julie J said, would be great if those fees rise another 150% soon so that people could stop even thinking about sending their little treasures to those elitist places. We then could finally spend the money on public schools and start practicing a bit of fairness around education. Benji B said, Private schools get taxpayer funds so much, in fact, that their property portfolios are bursting. Marco says, there appears to be a relationship between the growth in non-public education and our declining education standards. Most international literature suggests segmented school systems produce weaker overall academic results. So much for egalitarian Australia. Megaphone said, private schools in Australia are the next best Ponzi scheme. Not only do they rake in millions of taxpayer dollars, but millions in fees. The head principals are CEOs running a corporation with massive salaries and big fat boards. So much for fair and equitable education. Just another one of those neoliberal extreme capitalist experiments ensuring the born to rule are well and truly entrenched at the helm of society. Waitara said, Private schools are big businesses with huge annual turnovers and astute administrative resources who know how to extract every cent from state and federal government. I have observed private school students in the North Shoreline carry on at the train stations during their afternoon commute. They pretty much have the network to themselves and they're out of control. This delinquent, self-entitled behaviour is left to train guards to try and manage. Despite making numerous complaints to the school's concerns, nothing has changed. Their rude attitude whilst wearing branded kit does nothing for the image of these private institutions. Remind me again exactly what the 35K is for. And just one more. Iraq says... Have private school parents and the taxpayer been inadvertently investing in real estate all this time? <laughs> Indeed, they have. But um, we'll have a bit of a break 
And we're going to talk about a, a private school in Sydney that has been mentioned. It's called Knox Grammar. It's up on the North Shore. And uh, in previous weeks, we've talked about uh, schools that have been uh, under threat of losing their registration, that is being allowed to stay open. And Knox Grammar has uh, also uh, been, been looked into. And we've also noted that not one of the schools that has lost its registration or is in danger of it belongs to the, uh, the system which actually sexually abused children, namely the, the Roman Catholic system. Nobody's talked about deregistering those schools. In fact, they're still quite merrily making money on their assets. But uh, we'll have a bit of a break and come back to uh, find out a bit more about this Knox Grammar School. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03 94198377. 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. You're still listening to the Dogs Program, I hope, and uh, we've got a bit of scuttlebutt here about that Knox Grammar School and the group chats and uh, threats to their registration. Over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Jane. This article is by Lucy Carroll and Sally Rothstone. It's titled, Education Authority Told to Monitor Knox Grammar After Group Chat Revelations. New South Wales Education Minister Sarah Mitchell has asked the state's education authority to closely monitor the situation at private school Knox Grammar. Following revelation, students were expelled after posting offensive messages in an online private chat group. Mitchell said the activities in the chat group, which included inappropriate images posted on messaging app Discord, were unacceptable and should not be tolerated in any capacity. She said, I was shocked and appalled to learn of the activities within these chat groups. This is far from the behaviour we expect from students in New South Wales. I've asked New South Wales Education Standards Authority to closely monitor the situation at Knox and follow appropriate procedures. On Friday, New South Wales Police Commander of the Child Abuse and Sex Crimes Detective Superintendent Jane Doherty said a review of the content found no child abuse material. Police will continue to review activity, make inquiries, and will work with the school, parents, and the e-safety commissioner in relation to any matters that arise. A report published in the Daily Telegraph this week revealed messages posted on the group included misogynistic, racist, and anti-Semitic commentary. And the videos that were shared of young men who appeared to be being raped. Oh. Yeah, it's horrible. In a letter to parents on Wednesday, Principal Scott James said the school had acted following the incident involving several boys from the senior school. The nature of these posts is contrary to the values and culture of Knox and is unacceptable. The action of the boys do not reflect a Knox education or the expectations that we place on our students to be respectful and responsible citizens in the community, James said. The kindergarten to year 12 private school located in Warunga on Sydney's upper North Shore charges fees up to $35,000 and has a boarding school for up to 200 students. A parent with a son in year eight and another in year 10 said she thought the issue was with the individuals and not the institution. Well, one wonders about all of that. Uh, it's very interesting, isn't it? It is. Uh, nasty, nasty. So there's some more, isn't there, Dale? Yes, there's an article uh, from uh, Knox, from, it's called Confession of a Knox Grammar Old Boy. My son won't lose sleep as I have, and it's by Malcolm Knox. Uh, an old schoolmate invited me to his home for dinner. We hadn't seen each other in 30 years since we'd left Knox Grammar. 
the school that hit the headlines this week after boys were suspended or left after posting what their headmaster, Scott James, called inappropriate images and offensive commentary in an online private chat room. Much of the content was so stomach-turning it could not be published by the Daily Telegraph, which broke the story. Back to my schoolmate. Towards the end of a pleasant evening, he revealed how he'd never gotten over his bitterness at the horrendous abuse he had received at Knox from other students, not the teachers who were secretly sexually abusing boys at the, in the same era. The damage he revealed, as even as an adult with a good life deriving from his mighty intelligence, his lovely young family and the educational head start he'd had in life, was chilling. I thought, uh-oh. After a silence, I said, I want to know, was I responsible for any of that? He said with a sharpness that showed how hurt he still was, I wouldn't have you in my home if you were one of them. The awful truth for me was I honestly wouldn't have known if I had or hadn't been one of them. In the discussion of the most recent Knox grammar disgrace, like many private schools, it can count scandal amongst its many traditions, much focus is on online malignancy, in this case in an app the boys used called Discord. Attention's been drawn to the $10 million or so that taxpayers provide the school, including inadvertent state overfunding last year, well, inadvertent, last year of some $1.8 million, on top of more than $80 million poured in by parents and donors. If you want to use the word offensive, Annual school fees are up to thirty-five thousand. If they had, if they had kept pace with inflation since I was there, those fees would now be about nine thousand. The resultant shift towards economic elitism speaks for itself. When the blame is not placed on entitlement, toxic masculinity, or social media, it is shifted back to those individuals and their parents. Poor examples at home, absence of morals, no limits. These incidents recur year after year, or the tiny sliver that is uncovered and reported, and responsibility becomes so diffuse that the remedy shrinks back to the simple punishment of the children involved. And so the preconditions continue. I have no idea whether adolescents today behave worse or better than in the past, nor whether teenage boys are any different from teenage girls. Many of us would like to think that the narrowing of economic entitlement produced by elevated school fees had lowered morality to a kind of local Eden Harrow gutter. The online environment generates its own sewer mentality, which is also soothing to those who already believe electronic devices are the source of all evil. But I'm not so sure any of those factors is more to blame than any other. What I do know from my schoolmate's ongoing anger and my phantom guilt is that the worst bullying from teenage boys and girls stems from strength in numbers, and it's essentially a performance in front of a group. It is simplistic to think that these boys are actually glorifying Adolf Hitler. What they're doing arises from an intoxicated over-exuberance that renders the perpetrators too stupid and too full of themselves to to have the first idea of what they are doing. These particular teenagers are not solitary wolves brooding alone over why they are victims in this world. Those are the really dangerous ones who, in countries where they have easy access to guns, go out and use them. The bully groups believe they are among the strong. Those groups identify whose group identity is consolidated in attacking the weak. They do know right from wrong. The problem is that wrong is just another boundary that they compete with each other in crossing. You want to cause shock. You escalate it to anti-Semitism, gross misogyny and homophobia precisely because you know that they're forbidden places. You want your friends to gasp and giggle at your audacity. Drunk on group approval and closed in your little group, you think your crime is victimless. This is not solo violence. It is one big circle jerk. And while he's an ex-Nox student, and he, to an extent I find that a, a little bit too apologistic because there's, yeah. a, there's a, an, a, a stench of the boys will be boys mentality there. And no, I'm sorry, boys will be held accountable 
to their action. Anyway, back to you, Jean. Well, uh, thank you very, very much, uh, Dale. Uh, it's very insightful. I assume that he's got the, the common sense to send his children to public schools uh, where there isn't that sense of entitlement and silliness uh, and actual, actual criminality. But we'll have a break and then we'll come back uh, to listen to Jeff. And, of course, after that, we've got our great state school. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. And welcome back to the Dogs Program. This is the Dogs on 3CR, the Defence of Government Schools Program. Now we're going to go to Jeff. What have you got for us this week, Jeff? Thanks, Dale. This first one's from our wonderful Diana Ravitch blog in the States, and it's about unions. And it's she's saying that unions are getting popular again in America. And there's a good reason, of course, with the uh, downtrodden workers being crushed by the uh, evil corporate empires, especially in education. So let's let's this this, uh, this article came out September 11th, and here it's here it is. So. Diana says, big business has been trying to get rid of unions since the first union was created. Corporations don't want workers to have collective power. They prefer a workplace where they make all the decisions and don't have to listen to the workers' voices. To share, the share of unionised workers in the private sector is at a near an all-time low, but that may change. Recently, there have been inklings of the rebirth of unionism. We see it in the growing number of Starbucks and Amazon workers who have voted to unionise, but their numbers remain small. Happily, public opinion is trending in favour of unions. Somebody recently asked me why there was so much hostility to teachers' unions, and I answered, because they are the largest unions. Teachers' unions are blamed for whatever critics don't like in schools, even though they fight for adequate school funding and decent working conditions. Those who've wanted to crush all unions focus their wrath on the NEA and the AFT, which is the American versions of teachers' unions, while overlooking the police union and the firefighters' unions. My view, if you want to reduce poverty and build a robust middle class, support unions. The Economic Policy Institute reports it's been nearly 60 years since approval for unions in the US has been this high. More than 70% of Americans now approve of labour unions. Those are the findings of a Gallup poll released this morning, and they shouldn't be surprising. Why? US workers see unions as critical to fixing the nation's broken workplace, where most workers have little power or agency at work. The pandemic revealed much about work in the country. We saw countless examples of workers performing essential jobs, such as healthcare and food service. They were forced to work without appropriate health and safety gear, and certainly without pay commensurate with the crucial nature of the work they were doing. Those conditions, however, predated the, the pandemic. The pandemic merely exposed these dec decades-old worker dynamics. Clearly, as a new poll and recent data on strikes, strikes and union organising shows, workers today are rejecting these dynamics and awakening to, awakening to the benefits of unions. Non-union workers are forced to take their jobs, accept their employers' terms as is, or leave them. Unions enable workers to have a voice in those terms and set them through collective bargaining. We know the powerful impact unions have on workers' lives and broader effects on communities and on our democracy. Here's a rundown on the Economic Policy Institute's extensive research on unions. Pay and benefits. Unionised workers, covered by a union contract, earn on average 10.2% more in wages than non-unionised peers working in the same industry with occupation with similar education and experience. Unions don't just help workers, they help all of us. When union density is high, non-union workers benefit because unions effectively set broader standards, including higher wages. Union workers are more likely to be covered by employer health insurance. This is more applicable in America. More than nine in 10 workers covered by union contract have access to employer-sponsored health benefits compared with just 69% of non-union workers. Union workers have greater access to paid vacation days, 
90% of workers covered by a union contract receive paid holidays off compared to 78% of non-union workers. Union workers also have greater access to paid sick days. Nine in 10 covered by a union contract have access to paid sick days compared with 77% of non-union workers. Uh, in, the, in 17 US states with the highest union densities, the state minimum wages are average 19% higher than the national average and 40% higher than those in low union density states. They have a median annual income $6,000 higher than the national average. They have a higher than average employment insurance uh, rate, that is higher share of those who actually re receive unemployment insurance. Equity and equality, black and Hispanic workers get a larger boost from unionization. Black workers represented by a union are paid 13.1% more than their non-unionized peers. And the, and the article goes on to basically demonstrate the, the benefits of, of unionized labor and the benefits to the overall community by having a better paid, safer workforce with more access to medical care and more access to, um, to uh, benefits uh, than non-unionized workers. So it's a really good thing that in the United States now that the trend is towards unionization um, as a, a popular decision. And this one's from The Guardian from the Wednesday, the 7th of September, and it's by Nervi Shah for the Heshinger Report. Um, they can find it online under the heading, US school voucher programs have caught on, but are they funneling public dollars into private schools? In the last two years, she says, more than 20 states have started or expanded voucher programs seizing on frustration with pandemic schooling and culture wars. Just as a background, vouchers are being used in America as a, a Trojan horse to allow funding to be stripped away from public schools and gathered by private schools. So this is what's happening in the states, the voucher system, which is decidedly unfair. She says, Abby Clegg watched the Manchester School Board meetings online in the summer of 2020, slowly coming to terms with what was happening. New Hampshire schools were not going to reopen in the fall as the pandemic raged on. Clegg, her husband Rich, and their six children were all at home together. She and her husband were trying to work, and her older kids were trying to tap into online classes. It was a disaster for our family. They're sending home these packets. They're trying to do Zoom, and we don't have enough broadband, Clegg recalled. Clegg, who works with the New Hampshire Program for Foster and Adoptive Children, and her husband, a Baptist pastor, didn't have strong feelings about what type of schools their kids attended. Their eldest was enrolled at a private Christian school, while their four younger school-aged kids were attending a local public school, two of them in special education. But six kids at home for months was not going to work. Nearly a decade earlier, when New Hampshire created a private school voucher option, wherein state taxpayers and businesses get a credit that lowers their state taxes in exchange for donating money to the program. Clegg applied for the 2021 school year, enrolling two of her younger kids at a Catholic school that was open for in-person classes. When lawmakers created a new voucher program in the spring of 2021, joining a list of states tapping into frustration with pandemic schooling to advance school choice measures, Clegg applied again. The additional financial support meant that kids could stay in their private schools. The system provided temporary relief for Clegg and became increasingly popular across the country, especially during the pandemic. In June, the US Supreme Court also ruled that states with such programs cannot exclude religious schools, opening the door to more public funding for private religious education. But with the public school system already struggling, the advocates worry that the growing number of private school subsidies will strip public schools of resources. For families that can't afford to close the financial gap for a private school, this could further widen the inequality gap in the American school system and leave vulnerable children shortchanged from the beginning of their lives. Over the past two years, more than 20 states have started or expanded voucher-type programs, steering taxpayer money to help families afford private schools, pay for books and other materials for homeschooling, and cover the cost of services such as speech or physical therapy for the kids who aren't attending public schools. Some states tweaked long-standing programs. Others created entirely new, expansive programs with few or no limits on who can access public dollars and a minimal oversight on how the money is spent. Some of the moves were encouraged and cheered on by conservative groups aiming to up, upend public schools, now sometimes referred to as government schools. Many states, red and blue, also acted to boost charter schools, sometimes adding millions in state dollars for charter school buildings and student funding. Often, politicians and advocacy groups 
along with the teaching of systemic racism and other topics ensnared in the culture wars as reason for pushing through school choice measures. The educational choice movement has done everything possible to build the best surfboard for parents. This was the right wave, said Robert Enloe, president and CEO of the advocacy group EdChoice, referring to the pandemic. The timing was perfect, unfortunately perfect. Despite parental anger that has continued to simmer and evolve since the start of the pandemic, polling about parent interests in private school vouchers provides a mixed picture. Support for vouchers for all students and even for vouchers limited to kids from low-income families, families actually declined over the last few years to about 45%, according to the 2021 poll by Journal Education Next. Although polling conducted this year for some choice lobbying groups found strong support for private school subsidies. Libertarian think tanks and DC-based advocacy groups, which offer model legislation for lawmakers, are among those lobbying for these measures, and some aggressively attack legislators who don't sign on. School choice advocates are trying to motivate parents to vote, especially given parents' role in helping elect a conservative Republican who campaigned against school closures in the last year's Virginia gubernatorial race. In some states, Pandemic restrictions at state, at state houses may have also suffered as legislators uh, use the opportunity to pass measures without the large-scale in-person protests led by teachers and others in the past. Last year, a manufactured conflict over instruction about the so-called critical race theory fueled parents' anger, adding to frustration about pandemic schooling. One of the underlying goals of those trying to rile parents is the privatisation of public education. Too many parents today have no escape mechanism from substandard schools controlled by leftist ideologues, conservative activist Christopher Rufo wrote earlier this year. Universal school choice, meaning that public education funding goes directly to parents rather than schools, would fix that. Most, nation, most of the nation's kids, about 50 million of them, have stuck with conventional public schools. School choice advocates note that many of the vouchers offered around the country do not cover the full cost of tuition at a private school, and regulations can be restrictive about who can open charters and how much money they get. Currently, about 5 million school-age kids are enrolled in private schools, although that number includes students from families who don't use a subsidy for tuition. Another 3.5 million attend charter schools, a number that has ticked up during the pandemic, and the rate of homeschooling has increased too, though it still includes only a few million children. That potential tantalises choice advocates and scares public school proponents. Let's pretend we have 55,000 students in the district I'm in, said Kelly Berg, a calculus teacher who's president of the Mesa Education Association in Arizona. Now, of those 55,000, 5,000 student take, students take vouchers and go elsewhere, not in our district. That's over 100 teachers we have to cut. That could potentially mean a school closure somewhere. Those students might return to the public school system within a few months if things don't work out, but the money wouldn't follow them back until the following school year, Berg said, and teachers would already have been shifted around or laid off. That's the real rub for me, she said. School boards use pandemic restrictions to pave the way for vouchers. Some of the new programs were created specifically for parents objecting to pandemic restrictions. At the start of the 2021 school year, for example, Florida's State Board of Education expanded a small voucher program for students who had been bullied to include students who didn't want to wear a mask to school or face regular COVID-19 testing, its own form of harassment, the board argued. Only about 100 students in districts that required masks took, the state, took up the state on the offer. New Hampshire program, the New Hampshire program the Clegg family is using gives children from families with incomes of up to three, uh, up to 300% of the federal poverty limit or roughly $80,000 for a family of four, as much as $5,200 for private school tuition, homeschooling or education services, or transportation to an out-of-district public school amongst other uses. There's no requirement that a child attend public schools before applying for a grant. That kind of provision infuriates choice critics because it means parents can choose private schools without knowing whether a public school might be a good fit for their children. Supporters, however, say these clauses honour a parent's choice without re requiring them to jump through hoops. Governor Chris Sununu, a Republican, signed the New Hampshire legislation as part of the state budget in June 2021. By the end of the following school year, about 2,000 students had signed up. 
He also expanded a separate tuition program for families in rural areas with a limited with limited public options, allowing them to use taxpayer dollars to attend religious and secular private schools. West Virginia and Arizona went the furthest on school choice, creating options that would provide so-called education or empowerment scholarships to most or all of their respective state's public school students. Both efforts face hurdles. A court challenge has blocked the West Virginia program, at least for now, and a campaign is underway for, to force the Arizona measure to face voters, which could put the program on hold until at least 2024. Lots still failed, the programs that never took off. For as many school choice programs that emerged since the pandemic, lots still failed, said Sharon Kringle, Policy and Outreach Director at the Education Law Centre, which has joined with other public school advocacy groups to form Public Funds Public Schools, uh, an organisation. The organisation works on litigation that challenges vouchers and related programs. In Louisiana, the Democratic governor recently vetoed a bill that would have created education savings accounts allowing parents to use tax dollars for private school tuition, homeschooling, and other expenses. In Georgia, Republican lawmakers earlier this year pulled back a bill that would have provided state dollars for parents who wanted to send their children to a private school. In Oklahoma, a bill to, to create a voucher program failed in the Senate in March, despite a pressure campaign from DC-based lobbying group. Uh, from a D, the opposition to the bill came from Democrats as well as Republicans from rural areas that don't have private schools but more choice programs and battles are still to come. Some of the options created by the lawmakers in 2021, like voucher programs in Missouri and two cities in Tennessee are just getting off the ground, while others like an expansive voucher program in Ohio face new pushback. Back in New Hampshire, Abby Clegg is waiting to see whether her youngest, Emilia Joe, will fit into the Catholic school some of her siblings attend when she starts kindergarten soon, or whether another school will make more sense. It might not be a good fit for her. She's a fiery little kid, Clegg said. But being able to keep the kids where they are was such a blessing, she said, especially after the trauma her family experienced last year with her son, Caden, who died from complications related to some long-term conditions. Teachers are loving and warm, Clegg said. Several came to Caden's funeral and loved our kids so much during that time period. We are such huge advocates of finding schools that fit our kids, Clegg said. We want them to go to a school that helps them academically and to be a good human, really. I suppose everyone would agree with that. Back to you, Dale. Thanks for that, Jeff. And now on to some good news. Now for our Great State School of the Week. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the Week. State school. School of the Week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the Week. School for the Week here on the Dogs Program. This week's Great State School is Wandong Primary School. I'm going to read an excerpt from their website now. Wandong Primary School is a semi-rural school located approximately 60 kilometres north of Melbourne. Our student population continues to increase steadily with 262 students enrolled in 2010. Most of our students live in the towns of Wandong and Heathcote Junction. However, we also attract students from a wider area encompassing Clonbinane, Kilmore, Hidden Valley and Wallen. One principal, 15 teachers, including a leading teacher, one full-time business manager and five part-time education support staff assist in ensuring our school runs smoothly. Our school values are respect, responsibility, care, honesty, friendship and doing your best. And they are the foundation stones of our school and we use these to guide our students both in their learning and in their interactions with others and their environment. I'm gonna throw some facts and figures at you now from the Akara My School website. The school has 440 pupils. The Ixia value of the school is 990, which is well below the average of a thousand. This is a semi-rural community with a lot of trade families. 7% have parents from the upper quartile, 21% in the second highest, 35% from the third quartile and 37% from the poorest 25% of the community. 4% of the pupils speak a language other than English and 5% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school full of both semi-advantaged and disadvantaged students with dedicated principal and teachers. It costs the taxpayer 
$13,138 per year to send a pupil to this school which is a bit above the Gonski resource standard. The school receives only $1.1 million annually from the federal government and $4.4 million from the state government, $136,000 from fees and $148,000 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have been only $2.1 million. All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results of these students are just fine. So congratulations to the dedicated staff at this school in Wandong. Congratulations to Wandong Primary. You're our great state school of the week. And it just goes to show that state schools are great schools. It really resonates with me when I hear the schools talk about their school mottos. And those those school mottos always are about inclusivity and about consideration. I remember my school motto, courtesy, concern and consideration and it stuck with me and it tends to make you a a good citizen it tends to make you a good member of the community when you have care for those around you which uh, is something that I feel sorry for some of the students who do get segregated into the elite schools they don't know they don't know what it's like to actually feel like part of a community that um, is positive and not just not just aiming at low hanging fruit. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well said. That's all we've got time for tonight. Thank you to Maddie and Sorrel and Jeff and Jean. We'll be back with you next week. If you'd like to find out more about the dogs, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. But until next week, it's bye for now. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.